Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Monday, March the 20th, 2023. It is currently 6.21 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, I cannot speak for you. I never try to speak for anyone, but I can speak for me. Today has not gone according to plan, okay? Everything has gotten all messed up. I'm I'm so far behind. There's so many things we need to be working on. You know it. I know it. We need to do some more work on Ezekiel. Yes, we need to do some more work on the Gospel of John. Maybe the seven signs or the seven I am statements. There's some things we need to do for the Bible study exercise. There's there's so many things we need to be working on, and I've gotten kind of so far behind that it's a little bit frustrating, but I, I decided because someone shared with me a sermon series on a book that we've talked about a lot. In fact, if you do a search on the Church One app or even on the Sermons 2.0 app, if you look up Theology Central and search our content, you'll notice I have spent a lot of hours talking about this book. So someone found a sermon series. They haven't listened to it, but it looked interesting with the title and with some of the their advertisements and, 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 and some of their marketing stuff or, you know, promoting of the sermon series. And I was like, ooh, ooh, okay, I know I need to be doing this. But when, when, when sometimes what, what's the best thing to do when you're, when you're kind of behind or frustrated because you're not getting certain things done, sometimes it's good to take a step away from everything else and kind of do something completely not related just to kind of reset. So we're going to kind of reset. Now, I know this is dangerous because I'm going to reset. Basically, I'm going to walk myself right into another series, which I don't want to do, but I think it would be worthwhile in this particular uh, situation. So are you ready? Okay, let me ask you a question. This is very important. As a Christian... I want you to really, really think about this. As a Christian, how important is assurance of salvation to your spiritual life, to your spiritual growth, to your spiritual stability, to to you living out your Christian life? How important is your assurance of salvation? In other words, if you didn't have assurance of salvation, how would that negatively impact your Christian life? Now, some people may say, no, 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 no. You should never be sure of your salvation because it will keep you motivated. It will keep you trying. It will keep you working hard. It will keep you on your toes. But I believe that without assurance, there is major negative things that impact your Christian life. And I believe assurance gives you peace, rest, stability. And I believe there are benefits that come from it. I'm not going to articulate all of them. But I want you to just think about how important assurance is to your salvation. I want you to just really think about that. Now, now, so... Think about that. That's that's the first thing I want you to really ponder, contemplate. How important is assurance to your Christian life? And then, here's the big one. Where does that assurance come from? Where do you find assurance? If you determine that assurance is essential to your Christian life, if you determine that, hey, I've got to have assurance about my salvation or my Christian life is going to be a roller coaster, it's going to be a train wreck, it's going to be it's going to be a mess. Well, then where do you look for for assurance. Now, if you ask most Christians, assurance comes from what you do or don't do. They're going to give you a, they're going to give you a test. They're going to give you a checklist. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you not doing this? And, and you have to pass the test. And if you don't pass the test, you don't have any assurance. So therefore, assurance is determined by the, listen, the uncertainty of your own behavior, which to me doesn't lead to assurance unless you convince yourself that you're better than you are. But if you're really honest with yourself, if you look at the test most people give you, anyone who's even remotely honest would be like, well, I have no assurance because I sin in this way and I sin in this way and I fall short in this way. But some people think that's where you find assurance. I believe assurance should be found in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his imputed righteousness. 
because he, he finished it. He hung on the cross and said, it is finished. He paid for all of my sin. If all of my sins have been paid for, then why do I, why would I even look to my actions for assurance? All of my sins have been paid for. For everything, like, you, look, you do all of these things, you can't be saved. No, they they all of those sins were paid for by the finished work of Jesus Christ. How can you call into question my salvation by what I do when all my sins have been paid for? That makes no sense to me. And if I am saved by an imputed righteousness, then any test you give me is fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his imputed righteousness. But Christians will say, no, you've got to look to this. And the one book that they will pull out, oh, just like that, they will say, oh, you need assurance for your salvation? Let's go to 1 John and let's run the test. And if you pass the test, you're saved. If you failed the test, you're not. And then they play really weird games with First John, right? First John says, if you do this or if you don't do this, you're saved. And they'll say, well, but, 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 but nobody's going to do it perfectly. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to never sin. You're, I mean, I mean, so, so then it's an imperfect passing of the test that's supposed to find assurance. It's the most ludicrous, illogical thing that I've ever heard, but it's common in the evangelical world. It's common in the Christian world. Your church probably believes that, that 1 John is the test book, that test to prove if you are saved. But wait a minute, if all of my sins have been paid for, anytime I look in 1 John and see my failure, that failure has already been paid for. And anything this 1 John requires, I have in the imputed righteousness of Christ. So, does my assurance come from what I do or don't do, or does my assurance come from what Christ absolutely did perfectly? Now, this raises questions in how we interpret 1 John. So anytime I see a sermon series on 1 John, oh, I love to listen. Now, you know, if you have never listened to me, my hypothesis, my thesis is that 1 John is a polemic against Gnosticism. It's really a test to see, are you following the Gnostics? Are you staying true to the gospel as was delivered by Jesus Christ? Are you following this heretical gospel, this Gnostic idea? And I think everything in there is really a test against Gnosticism. That, that's, that's how we, we, now you can go back and listen to our series on 1 John. We worked through a good portion of the book putting forth this concept. Not every 99% of people don't agree with my hypothesis, but I think historically I can clearly prove that 1 John is dealing with Gnosticism, even when it speaks of Antichrist and any Antichrist. It, John is dealing with the Gnostics. He's dealing with Gnostic leaders at that time. That's the Antichrist that he was referring to at the time. So, uh, but whenever I see a new sermon series on 1 John, my interest is peaked. So someone sent this to me, and I'm like, well, look, everything else has been a mess today. You know what I'll do? I'll grab at least, I think this is sermon number one, and we will review it. Now, remember how sermon reviews work. I don't listen to it in advance. So I have no idea. In fact, the person who sent it to me was like, hey, I don't know what they say. Hey, I don't know what their perspective is. And I'm like, well, that's perfect. That's the way we like the sermon reviews, right? We like the sermon reviews, not to, we don't know what's going to happen. It's fun. It's organic. It's real. It's basically, it's a Monday evening. My day has been a mess. Let's just grab a sermon and listen to it. And let's just grab one on a, on a, on first John, which just happens to be a book that we've talked about over and over and over and over and over and over. So if you have a Bible, first John, if you have a notebook, let's dig in. And for, for further context, further discussion on first John, you can either download the Church One app, that's Church O-N-E, Church O-N-E. Once you download the app, do a search for Theology Central, search for us, and then select us. And then you can search for First John and find all of our content. If you go to Sermons 2.0, find uh, look for Theology Central. Um, if you go to the Sermons 2.0 app, look for Theology Central, find us, do a search for First John. You can find all of our content. There is a lot because we've been because this book is so controversial and debated. I believe the way most people preach 1 John, it shouldn't give anyone assurance. 
I think if anyone is remotely honest with the way most people read 1 John as a test, everyone would walk away, I'm not saved. But Christians everywhere is like, nope, I'm saved, I'm saved. I'm like, how can you read 1 John and walk away thinking you're saved if we take this as a test? Well, the way you do it, you have to water down the test. Well, I don't really do this perfectly. I don't do this perfectly, but I do enough to prove that I'm saved. Well, does 1 John say if you give it a good college try that you'll be saved? It seems 1 John demands almost a perfection. And if it demands a perfection, well, then there's only one way to pass that test. That's in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I, I digress. I don't know where this sermon is going to go. I don't know how they're going to cover it. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know if we're going to agree, disagree, but we're going to jump in and we'll see. This will be part one. I don't know how many parts we'll do. Um, we'll, 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 we'll just jump in and we will see. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you more about the where you can get the rest of this sermon series and everything later. Maybe at the conclusion of the review of at least this sermon, I'll give you all the information. But here we go. We're already 10 minutes in. I got my Bible open to First John. I got a bottle of Dasani because if it's not Dasani, it's not water. All right. So I got that ready to go. I got an iPad. I got pencils. I got notebooks. I have no idea what's about to happen. Neither do you. Let's take a deep breath. Are you ready? Here we go. And you can be seated. Uh, you can take my, oh, we're not actually going to look at it this week, but you can turn there to the book of First John. Um, I was going to preach to the book of Hebrews, and um, after uh, talking with some good friends and praying about it, I, I changed my mind, and like, uh, the Lord just wanted our church to go through the book of First John. And uh, we're going to start a study on the book of First John. And uh, this is all introductory material today, probably next week and maybe the next week after that. But I promise you, we're going to get to 1 John. We're going to go through the entire book of 1 John. I, I promise you, we will do that. The, the way he talks is hurting my throat. It's hurting my throat. I hope, I hope his voice is okay. It just may be the way he talks. But it sounds painful. It sounds painful. Uh, hopefully, hopefully he wasn't going through any kind of voice uh, problems because, oh man, I know all about that. There's nothing worse when you're trying to talk and you're having a throat or voice issues. I, I, so I mean, it just may be the way he talks, but it, it sounds painful. Hopefully that's not the case. But I do find that funny. <laughs> we may go three or four weeks with just introductory material before we actually get into First John. I so under, look, if there was ever a book where you need four or five weeks of introduction, it's probably First John. I, I, I completely understand that. Like you, you could probably spend, we're going to spend six months just trying to get us prepared to actually, because there's all of these issues about how do we interpret it? What was the point? What was the point of it, of, of it being written? How should we understand? There's so many issues about First John, but we'll see how he handles this. All right, um, but I just want to set a larger context for you because uh, assurance is so vital. It's so vital. Why is assurance vital? I'm going to give you lots of reasons why. But Okay, now see, that was the question I had. How important is assurance? He is answering my question is, it is absolutely vital. It is. Now, if assurance is vital to one's Christian life, and then you offer up First John as the way to get said assurance, and you preach it as it's a test to determine if you're saved, then no one is ever going to have assurance. Because even if you pass the test on a Monday, you may be failing the test on a Tuesday. So how does it, and some people say, well, no, 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 no. It's, it's the totality of one's life. When you get to the end of your life, was your direction this way? Well, then I can't have assurance till I get to the end of my life. So I, so, so, but if it's vital, then I, <laughs> how vital is it? Let's see how, what he says in regards to why assurance is vital to the Christian life. And I'm and I'm and I'm going to try to withhold giving you everything today, but it might feel like I'm giving you everything today because I have so much I want to give you. But um, here's why: is because um, 
a person could, could easily fall into despair and just give it up, right? Uh, well, I completely agree that, that if you don't have assurance, you could just be, fall into despair and just give up. Like, what's the point? I can't, I can't do this. Now, I believe if you teach 1 John as a test, you will lead people to despair. Here, here's the, if you give 1 John as a test, to, to give someone assurance, I think it will only lead to despair or self-righteousness. Either you're going to be honest and be like, I don't do this, or you're going to water it down so that you can tell yourself that you do do it, and then you're going to become self-righteous and condemning of others. It's either, I think if you handle First John in the wrong way, you will lead to total despair, despondency, deconstruction, depression, you'll feel defeated or you're going to become self-righteous judgmental jerk looking down on everyone else. I think that, I think that's where you're going to go if you handle it in an incorrect way. If if two things, if they don't know Christ through the gospel and if they don't know that they know Christ and if they don't know that Christ knows them, they're just giving up. So it's vital, this assurance, assurance in an age of uncertainty. This is a critical time in our, in our culture, in our country. Ever since March 2020, uncertainty seems to be this constant in this world due to the COVID pandemic, right? For the past two years, we have been bombarded daily with news briefings and constant updates and conflicting reports. We have all been eating, sleeping, and breathing COVID-19. There, and as a result, there has been uncertainty over one's health. There's an uncertainty about one's job. There's been uncertainty about economic health and financial stability, financial markets. There's been uncertainty about the future viability of churches. There has been increasing anxiety about rising costs due to inflation. I just read last night on Instagram a local restaurant apologizing for raising the prices of their chicken wings and it's my favorite place to get chicken wings. It's V Pizza in Ponte Vedra. If you haven't had their chicken wings, go get their chicken wings. They're amazing. But they were apologizing on Instagram for the rise in prices of their chicken wings. And they explained in detail why. It's because uh, their purchase for chicken, I can't remember the exact, it was like $127 or something for like a, whatever it was their, their chicken order was. But their costs went up so high, it went from $11 for their chicken wings to $16, so five extra dollars. And they were apologizing to all their customers, and I thought, wow, look at that. They, they have anxiety about rising costs due to inflation, and they want to make sure their customers are not going to go, well, we were paying $11 six months ago, and now we're paying $16.95. You know, what are you doing? You're, you're scamming us. And they're like, it's not a scam. And they, they just laid it out in detail. Now, this kind of, this is, I think, somewhat brilliant because you're showing all of the problems that arise from uncertainty within normal life. So in normal life, if you have uncertainty, it, it, we have all of this uncertainty and you can see all of the dilemma and problems it can cause. So if we have uncertainty in all of these other areas of life and we know the negative implications it has for our life, our emotions, our, our, our mental health, whatever the case may be, well, then how much more so does uncertainty in one's eternal salvation, how, how, what's the negative consequences from that, if all of these other things create all of the problems because of uncertainty in life, I don't know how we're able to live our life if we don't even have certainty about our salvation. So I think it's, it's, it's a good parallel. But they had this uncertainty. Will our customers come back? What are our customers going to do? They, we've had anxiety about managing our children when the school's closed. 
we had to manage six kids for a whole school year in our home. Parents have to manage their children because schools are suspending them for not wearing face masks. That's, that creates a huge amount of anxiety and uncertainty. We have faced mandatory lockdowns, which created tremendous frustrations over limitations on our movements and activities. You heard from David and Sandy from Dublin two weeks ago about how they couldn't go but, but just one and a half kilometers from their house. And so this, 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 uh, this disconnect, this inability to connect with others in a time of social distancing, we'll never forget that term, right? Social distancing, six feet apart. It has had devastating effects on the culture. So, uh, social media platforms like Zoom have, have proven to not alleviate the problem of isolation, the, the anguish felt by many Christians in online forms of worship has led many to realize that Zoom church is not church. It isn't church. Because listen, anything that serves to separate soul and body in a real way, do you know what that does? It simulates death. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked. Um. But we, we could have this discussion. I think we could have a debate here, right? Because supposedly if you meet in person, all of a sudden it's church. But if you don't meet in person, it's basically simulating death. It's practice. I, I, I have a hard time with that. But I, but I guess some people, they need that, like, I don't know. They, they sit down in a pew and the fact that there's someone near them makes them feel better. Or afterwards they can shake hands or afterwards they can hug or afterwards they can talk to them about the weather or their job. It, it makes all the difference. I know that I have a probably a much more introvert kind of way of looking at it. Like, you know, it's like... Yeah, whoa, I went to, like when I go to church, I, I, I maybe this is the wrong way to approach it, but I never really think about the people around me. I'm focusing on, okay, what am I going to learn today about from about God from his word? But okay, maybe, but all right, we can have a whole discussion here. Now, he's got to be careful or this is one of those situations where your opening illustration kind of takes you further and further and further and further and further away from your actual point. I've been guilty of that. Every preacher has been guilty of that. What he wants to do is just show, hey, there's uncertainty in the culture. Here are the negative implications of that uncertainty. And now how much more important is uncertainty in our spiritual lives? But he, if he's not careful, it's going to start debating the merits or the negative impact of, say, Zoom church. It's not natural. And so this, this, this inability to physically gather in a place called the visible church, being isolated, being by ourselves, being alone, being physically separated from each other, it's been a taste of death. Just again, maybe a taste of... What's a taste of death for one may be a great treasure for another. Let's just make sure not everyone is wired the same way. Let's just make sure we say that, right? Like you're like, it's a taste of death. I don't know what, I don't know what to do. And other people are like, I haven't seen any, I haven't seen someone in three years and I'm the happiest I've ever been. Okay. So just, just. So just we got to remember, not everyone is wired the same way. I know we claim that everyone is, but people are not wired the same way. Hopkins University this past week, I don't know if you saw it, it was on the news. They released a study that was aimed at looking at the belief that lockdowns reduce COVID mortality. There was a study in London, the London researcher said, if you do this, it will reduce it by 98%. Well... This study concluded that lockdowns have done very little to save lives, that it only was effective by 0.2%. What happened? The never-ending world of debating uh, COVID statistics. 
Oh, man. All you got to do is do a podcast about COVID and you'll get 50 emails. No, these statistics. And someone's like, no, these statistics. No, these statistics. And then you have to look at how the statistics are gathered. And it's like sometimes people will read a headline and not really break it down to what these statistics are saying. But again, he's supposed to be giving us about assurance. And now this is just... All he's now he's doing, he's going on, he has a strong opinion about the lockdowns, and this is really becoming, he's getting further and further away from what his illustration is supposed to really be illustrating. Again, I'm not being super critical. I've done the same thing in my preaching because so many times, and just so that you, for those sitting in the pew, you don't understand this, but let me help you explain what happens. Sometimes you, you've prepared your sermon, right? You're, because say you're going verse by verse or whatever the case may be. And you know this coming Sunday, you're get, this is where you're supposed to be. But So you're prepared. But then Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, you start hearing something. You start reading something. And all of a sudden, this starts dominating your thoughts. This start, And you know it's not related to your sermon in any meaningful way. And you're becoming kind of exercised about it. And maybe you're trying to talk to someone about it. And, it's, and then the next thing you know, you're standing in front of a microphone. You're standing behind a pulpit. And the next thing you know... You so for some weird reason you'll try to connect you'll 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 try to say oh this could serve as an illustration but all it really is is you just want to talk about this and so what you have to do as a pastor when you realize that's happening is go hey guys I know we're supposed to be in first John this week but you know what I've been really exercised about this so today we're just going to talk about this topic. Now, it may irritate some people in your church because they're like, no, how dare you spend a Sunday talking about this topic? You're supposed to be preaching the word of God. But if you're going to talk about the topic anyway, and it actually is moving people, it's not leading people to the scriptures, it's leading people away from the scriptures, then why not just be honest and say, this is what I need to talk about. And hopefully your people will show mercy and grace and give you that freedom to be able to talk about what is extra you're exercised about. But this has nothing to do with assurance other than now, hey, you can't be assured of the, of whatever the government, now you can't be sure what the medical world says. You can't be sure what the government says. You have no assurance in anything. Now, is he going to use it to say you can't have assurance in anything in this world? but you can have assurance in your salvation, maybe he's going to try to flip it and go that direction. Happened 98%. It didn't work. And what the study discovered was with the lockdowns that isolated everybody from everybody has proven to be more harmful than beneficial. Listen to what the researchers discovered about Okay, now he's just going to go into a full-blown thing about this. Let's make sure, again, I, I hate to defend this, but just from a medical world perspective, when you're dealing with a novel coronavirus, new, you have to make decisions with what you know at that moment. If anyone thought that whatever people thought at the beginning of the pandemic or even in the middle of the pandemic is what was going to be the, the, what everyone knew and understood at the end of the pandemic, you were fooling yourself. That's not the way it works. You're like, we got this novel coronavirus. It's spreading. Okay, wait a minute. It has the potential to kill people. What should we do? What should we do? So you got to make a decision. Now you may make a decision and then realize later, mm, but what, what, which way should you make the decision? Should you make a decision that you think is the best possible way to preserve life or should you make a, t a decision that's the best way to preserve freedom? Should you worry about preserving life or preserving everyone's so-called freedoms? Now, some people say freedom over life. Others are like, no, I'm pro-life. Life over freedom. But so it, again, it's just funny that the pro-life people, many of them were like, no, pro-freedom. We don't care about life. Okay. But I, I think so. All right. But see, once again, he's getting us way away from first John. This. It says, quote, while this meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they have been adopted. In 
And there's no question that there was some major negative consequences from it. There was. I just don't believe it was a grand conspiracy to try to destroy people. I think they thought they were making the best decision with the knowledge they had. And it's always easy after the fact to go, they got it wrong. They got it wrong. They got it wrong. It's always easy to question everyone after the fact, right? It's always it's, e- it's always easy after the game to tell everyone who played the game what they got wrong in the game while you were sitting on the couch eating a bag of Doritos. Okay, but I, I digress. Consequence, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument, end quote. The, these lockdown mandates have had adverse effects on the economy, on the education of our children, on the existence and sustainability of many churches. Many churches have closed. Many pastors have just thrown their hands up and quit and walked away. And let's make sure we know why many pastors threw up their hands and quit and walked away. Not because of lockdowns. Many of the pastors threw up their hands and walked away because no matter what they did, they were being tore apart and ripped apart by their congregations. Because if you locked down, you got tore apart by the people who were anti-lockdown. If you didn't lock down, you got ripped and tore apart by the people who were pro-lockdown. No matter what you did, someone was going to be tearing you apart, calling you into question, calling your faith into question, calling you an instrument of Satan, a part of the grand new world order you were an elite whatever so if you were if you said okay we're gonna lock down the anti-lockdown crowd we're leaving your church we're leaving we're gonna go find a good church and if you if you didn't lock down then the pro-lockdown were like that's it we're gonna go find a church and like and it didn't matter it didn't you were losing people every every pastor was losing people because someone from one side or the other was going to be against you so you know what instead of people wanting to support their pastors all they could do is second guess question challenge and basically leave their church So, yeah, I can see why many pastors threw up their hands. Had nothing to do with the government. Had a lot to do with their congregation. There has been a massive rise in drug use. A massive rise in alcohol abuse. A huge surge in physical and sexual abuse in the home. And also a a huge adverse effect on the mental well-being of of citizens. And so what has happened is, is that these adverse effects have created a situation that is ripe for fear and anxiety and uncertainty. We live in an age of uncertainty just about almost everything. What's next? What's around the corner? What is going to be the news today? Right? And so so when we come to the doctrine of assurance, this is why we need to look at the book of 1 John. Because we need our hearts assured. We need to be comforted. We need to find rest. Assurance. Some a solid foundation in an age of uncertainty. I do believe spiritually we need that assurance. We need that stability. We need that peace. I completely agree. But I get nervous when people are like, First John is where we go. Because if you say First John is where you go, and now here's the test, and if you pass the test, you get the assurance. If anyone's even remotely honest with the test, you will not get any assurance. You will get totally devastated, dis- depressed, and discouraged, or you're going to become a self-righteous, arrogant jerk thinking that you actually passed the test that you know you don't pass. But that's neither here nor there. Let's see where he's going to go with this. Then, in a similar fashion, the evangelical church in America and around the world has been adversely affected by a theological pandemic from the last 24 years and counting. This theological virus of this pandemic is widespread and it has adversely infected thousands and thousands of believers for decades. This theological virus 
has left countless sheep bruised and battered and fearful and anxious and uncertain over their salvation. This is what Michael Horton says. He says, sensitive persons will inevitably scrape their consciences raw until they find clues. He says, and as John Calvin warned, there will be no satisfaction with evidences. Ooh, okay. So he's saying there's been a pandemic for 24 years. Basically, that's leaving Christians not with assurance. And that John Calvin said that there is no assurance with evidences. Ooh, I love that. I would have to find the, uh, the context of that John Calvin quote. If anyone can find the John Calvin quote, that there's no assurance with evidences, please email it to me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I'd like to see the paragraph in which this supposed line from John Calvin comes from. I don't remember that quote from John Calvin. I mean, I've obviously read everything Calvin has said, but that's been, you know, you don't remember every word, but that would be a great quote. So I like this. So he goes from the pandemic I think he kind of got a little sidetracked there, but that's okay. We all do that in our preaching. We all, we all, it can all happen. I'm going to back this up, that there's been a, basically a pandemic theologically for 20, he says 24 years. Thousands of believers for decades. This theological virus has left countless sheep bruised and battered and fearful and anxious and uncertain over their salvation. This is what Michael Horton says. He says, sensitive persons will inevitably scrape their consciences raw until they find clues. He says, and as John Calvin warned, there will be no satisfaction with evidences. No satisfaction with evidences. I said no assurance. No satisfaction with evidences. I definitely would like to see the the context of that. Because he says there will never be enough to secure the soul's confidence. Now that's true. There will never be enough evidence to secure the soul's confidence if the individual is even remotely honest with themselves. What blows my mind is that you find Christians going to 1 John going, it's a test and I pass the test. It's, it's a test and I pass the test. And I'm like, how do you think you pass this test? Well, it's not calling for perfection. It's only calling for direction. And I'm like, can you somehow think that just your imperfect direction is enough to give you confidence or assurance that... When God demands something, he demands perfection, so you should immediately be filled with dread and panic. And the only place to find assurance has to be in something other than evidence, has to be something other than your works. It has to be in something that is perfect. And, well, there's only one thing to point you to. I, I can't tell you over the years, and even in this church, many of you, if not the majority of you, have come to me and shared with me how you have lacked assurance of your salvation due to this harmful teaching. It's widespread in the church. It's almost a predominant view in the evangelical church. The question of assurance is at the root of this long-standing theological controversy. So what exactly is this harmful teaching that undermines a believer's assurance? In popular terms, this harmful teaching is often called, is often referred to as a so-called lordship salvation view. Now, as someone who used to teach the lordship salvation view, I now would be in full agreement that it is harmful, it is a virus, it is a pandemic, and it has done irreparable damage. But let me make it very clear. He's looking at the damage it does to the individuals, to the individuals, that it leads them with no assurance and despair and, and discouragement and despondency. And I, I think that it is a, 
The Lordship Salvation is a virus, it's a disease, it's a pandemic that uh, that ultimately impacts a proper distinction between law and gospel, and it destroys the gospel and turns the gospel into law, and it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe it's almost something counter to it. So I, I, I look at the damage it does to the gospel and uh, it does to the proper distinction between law and gospel. I do understand the ramifications it has in people's lives. Now, what I think Lordship Salvation does, I, I'm going to flip it around a little bit. I don't think Lordship Salvation leaves most people feeling discouraged, despondent. It leaves some, but I think they're in the minority because I don't think most people are sensitive enough to even acknowledge how how far they fall short of these tests. The most people in the Lordship Salvation are not filled with despair, despondency, and beat up. No, they become arrogant, self-righteous, condemning jerks. That's what they become. They think they're better than everyone else, and they're constantly saying, that person's not saved. That per-. They, They're constantly pointing the finger at the whole world saying, they're not saved. They're not saved. They're not saved. And as soon as someone commits a sin, they're like, well, see, they probably were never saved. They're probably every. No one is saved. The Lordship salvation, everyone walks around like they're basically God telling everyone that they're not saved, and they become arrogant, self-righteous, condescending jerks. And that's no other way to get, and I was one of them. Now, if you're not familiar with Lordship Salvation, that's okay, but let me just briefly give you some historical background. So this morning is going to be a little bit of, a, a little bit of history, a little bit of teaching, and I promise you I'm going to finish with a lot of comforting preaching. All right, so just bear with me and we'll get through this. So if you don't know what Lordship Salvation is, let me just give you some background. This so-called Lordship Salvation controversy was largely a debate that erupted in the 1980s, which I think some of you were just born then, (laughs) right? Uh, In early 90s, which some of you were just born then, and David still hadn't been born yet, Um, but but this this was a debate that 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 erupted largely in Baptist evangelical dispensational circles. It wasn't taking place in Reformed churches. And the controversy was this: it was over a concern that justification and sanctification were being separated. Okay, now this is very important for historical context for me. I was in Baptist churches, right? I became a Christian in the 80s, right? So I became a Christian right there, kind of moving towards the late 80s, mid to to late 80s, right? So maybe 86 is when I become a Christian, maybe 86. I think it was 86. Maybe it was 85, 85, 86, somewhere around that time. So I become a Christian really where all of this is kicking off. All of this is kind of happening. Now, I have no context, right? So I'm a brand new Christian. I don't understand that this is like this new controversy. I'm just basically told if you're a Christian, you will make Jesus Lord. And if you don't make Jesus Lord, you're not a Christian. And you got to do this and this and this and this and this. And if you don't do this, you're not a Christian. And then I I come into contact with, you know, almost immediately with, you know, uh, the Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur, his study guide on First John. Like these are some of the early things I come in contact with. Okay, now I go off to Lutheranism for a little bit, uh, and I but I'm still hearing all of this debate about lordship and and how all of this works. Now I, I don't I don't even know if we were using the term lordship right at the beginning, but I was even though I was in Lutheranism, I was hearing all of this other stuff, and I was trying to process it. And basically, what I you know it became pretty obvious to me. Okay, now that I'm a Christian, well, I got to do this and this and this and this and this, and if I don't do this, I'm not a Christian. But I know I believe in Jesus, so I've got to convince myself that I'm doing all of these things, even though deep down I was knew I was doing this. And I, there was all these wrong things I was doing. I won't go back to all the wrong things I was doing. Let me just say, I wasn't doing all the right things. But I was convincing myself, oh, I read my Bible more than anyone else. I go to church. I'm there at every service. I study more than anyone studies. I know theology better than anyone else. I'm reading more Christian books than it. Like, I found these things that I could be like, I know how good I was doing these things. And that became like my badge of honor. So I know I'm saved, but I don't know about you. And I don't know about you. And I don't know about you because if you really believe in Jesus, you wouldn't be doing this and you wouldn't be, well, at the same time, basically ignoring all the things I was doing wrong. 
It was so messed up and I didn't know how else to process all of this. Because it was basically like, if you're really saved, and this became a common phrase used at that time. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. So I'm like, okay, Jesus is Lord of all. But it was clearly he wasn't Lord of all in a practical way because I was committing this and this and this, and I was constantly being told. But when you became a Christian, you're a new creature. Old has passed away. Everything has become new. And they didn't mean that positionally. They meant that practically. So I was like, okay, okay, everything is new. Everything is new. But I'm like, why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep sinning? I kept trying to convince myself that I was more, that was more godly than I was. Finally, I start kind of having breaks and, and really almost like a breakdown. I, at some point, I basically asked my pastor, is it possible that I'm demon possessed? Because I couldn't understand why I was committing sin. Of course, a lot of other things happen in there. My mom dies. I try to kill myself eight weeks in a psychiatric hospital. So there was a lot of other things happening at this time that, you know, I, I set aside some theological concerns. But then by the time I get into the 1990s, now I'm in an independent fundamental Baptist church and it's full-blown lordship salvation. They're not saved. They're not saved. They're not saved. They're like, nobody is saved. Oh, they listen to secular music. They're not saved. They go to movie theaters. They're not saved. The women wear pants. They're not saved. The men have long hair. They're not saved. I mean, it was just like, they use the NIV. They're not, nobody was saved. It was basically, we're the only ones who are saved. It was, it was crazy. Um, and, but then it just really emphasized more like you just tell everyone that they're not saved. The gospel message was basically telling everyone that they weren't saved because they didn't do enough good things. Well, at the same time, trying to tell everyone that we believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. It was a confusing theological time, to say the least. You can be justified, but sanctification might take place later on or something. You see, historic, historic Reformation Protestantism has always affirmed that justification and sanctification are part of the same package of salvation. Justification, we'll come back to this. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, I am being saved from the power of sin. So these two benefits of salvation are to be distinguished, but you don't separate them. But what happened was there was a concern back in the early 80s from some, from some people that these double benefits of salvation were being separated. So here was, here's what you had. On one side, you had people from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Right? You had men like uh, Charles Rari. You might have heard of the Rari Study Bible. Uh, and later and more significantly, you had men called Zane Hodges. All right, and what they argued was this: is that um, you you have to accept Jesus as your Savior, but you don't need to accept Him as Lord to be saved. All right, so this this camp, this this view that was being taught was called the Savior but not Lord camp. It was called the Free Grace camp, or some was called the Cheap Grace camp. But it said, if you do accept Jesus later, right, and if you want to become a disciple, you can live the, quote, victorious Christian life. So it came out of this, this uh, higher life teaching. This teaching struck a lot of people. They said, wow, that's, that's antinomianism. That's license. That's, that's, that's not correct. And so... Uh, John MacArthur, a pastor from California who's also a Baptist evangelical dispensationalist, uh, he saw the problems with this teaching, and so he wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus in 1988. See, 1988, like I'm like a baby Christian. I'm like a baby Christian at this point. And I, and for me, I don't know that this is like some new, I don't know that there's like this theological debate going on. I just think that this is Christianity. Like, I don't understand. I, I, my first encounter is with MacArthur, not with Zane Hodge, not with the other side, not with, and, and, and how to distinguish between sanctification and, or justification and sanctification. I still was trying to process exactly how this works and how this all plays itself out, right? So, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see how, where he follows it. I, 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 could, I could go my own discussion here, but I'll wait and save some of my viewpoints as we move through this review. 
And he wrote this book to refute this, this bad teaching. All right. And so MacArthur and his followers, this camp came to be known as the Lordship Teachers or Lordship Salvation Camp. And so MacArthur's book was the catalyst that blew this debate up. And some of what he wrote in his book was actually helpful in a much-needed correction to these antinomian views by, the, by Zane Hodges and people like him. And I don't necessarily like calling the other side antinomian. I don't think that that's fair in a lot of ways, right? So, so I'm, so I'm going to tick everyone off in this because I'm not as opposed to the free grace side as everyone, uh, would, everyone else would be because I think the free grace side has a lot right. There may be not everything I agree with, but I'm not sure that just because you're like, no, you're saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ, not by what you do, but by what he did, and you're saved by it alone, I don't think that makes you antinomian. I don't think you can say, well, you're saved by what Jesus did, but if you don't do this and this and this and this and this and this, well, then you believe in cheap grace and then you believe in, ant- and you're an antinomian. No, I believe my salvation is by what Jesus did, not what I do. I believe my, the, my salvation is based off what Christ did. My sanctification, yes, I do believe I'm to, to call to become more and more holy, but I don't judge my justification on the basis of my sanctification. So I believe the absence of sanctification does not call into question the presence of justification because I'm justified by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. So, all right, let's continue. But the problem is this, as Michael Horton points out in his book, Christ the Lord, the Reformation and Lordship Salvation. Best book written on the subject. Get it, digest it, memorize it, study it. Give it, to, give it to your friends. Read that book. He points out this. He says that when MacArthur was pulling up the weeds of antinomianism, he also pulled up the flowers of the Reformation. In subsequent and updated versions of his book, as I'll show you in, in just a little bit, his book continues to pull up the flowers of the Reformation. And so, from, from a Reformed confessional church, from a Protestant Reformation, Reformed confessional view, neither Hodges nor MacArthur's position represents the Protestant Reformation view on these issues. You see, because those who hold to the Reformed confessions of the Christian faith, and remember, everybody has a confession of faith. Everybody, if you say Jesus is Lord, that's a confession of faith. How do you define that? That's what matters. And so those who hold to the the Reformed confessions of the Christian faith or who who do not hold to it are often surprised to learn that the Lordship salvation view differs significantly from the Protestant Reformation view. You see, because I want to make this very clear, those who... I believe the lordship view is far more in line with Roman Catholicism. And, I, and, I, and, and, and that was a major discussion when I was enrolled in a Catholic university. There were basically that lordship view is basically Roman Catholicism. It's basically, and, and now they, they, the lordship people would never acknowledge it, but basically almost teaches an infused righteousness and, you're, and you've got to do this and this and this in order to be saved. And if you don't do this, you're not saved. Therefore, you have to do this in order to be saved. So you can't say that works aren't a part of it. So it's, and you're not looking to the finished work of Christ and you're not looking to his works and you're not looking to his imputed righteousness. You're looking to some practical righteousness in your life to determine if you're saved. So it, that, that I, that's one of the major, and I do agree that lordship salvation is not consistent with historical Protestant theology, which was a, was a, which is, was an emphasis on imputed righteousness, not infused righteousness. Hold to the reformed confessions of the Christian faith, like our church. The issue of Lordship salvation isn't confessing Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. That's not the issue. If you just look at the Reformed Confessions, they're very clear when they provide this thematic summary of what the Bible teaches in summary fashion. We confess that Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. Listen, for example, to the Heidelberg Catechism, question 31. Why is Jesus called Christ? That is anointed. 
And here's the answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our salvation. Jesus is our only high priest. Listen, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and whoever lives to make intercession for us with the Father, which Mac shared with us last week so elegantly. Mac, thank you. It's so hard to preach, and so thank you for serving our church so well and being so faithful to us. It was a great message. Then listen to this third point, and Jesus is our eternal king. He's our Lord. He's our eternal king who governs us. He rules us by his word and spirit, and he now, see, this is where I, I start getting a little, I, I get find myself at odds with everyone. Go look at when people believe in Jesus. Does Jesus break it down and go, hey, now, 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 now? Or did the apostle say, hey, 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 what do you need to do to be saved? Well, you need to believe that Christ is the anointed one. You need to believe that he's priest. You need to believe that he's king. No, believe in Jesus Christ and thou will be saved. Believe in his work. Believe that he died for you. I do believe there are certain aspects of Jesus someone has to believe in, but I don't see that in that in preaching the Christ and calling people to salvation is like, okay, we're going to break down the theological implications of the three offices of Christ. And you got to see him as prophet, priest, and king. And you got to make sure you understand him as Lord. Like, I don't, that, I know, I, I don't, I don't see it that way. I believe that, do you understand you're a sinner? Do you believe your only hope is in Jesus Christ and his finished work? Do you believe in his his sacrifice for your sins? Like, I, I don't know if you need to break it all. I, we do need to teach prophet, priest, and king. We need to teach those offices. But I don't know if that's required in order for someone to be saved. He defends and he preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. We confess the lordship of Christ, the kingship of Christ. Listen to this. We also confess the lordship of the Holy Spirit each week at at Holy Communion. The Nicene Creed, again, which provides a thematic summary of the whole teaching of the Bible in a summary fashion. It says this, that the Holy Spirit, listen to this. He is the Lord. (laughs) We confess the lordship of the Holy Spirit. He is the Lord. He is the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. You see, listen carefully, as our eternal king, Jesus, governs, he rules us by his word and spirit so that not only Christ, but the Holy Spirit of Christ also rules us as Lord. We might call these last days that he may rule us as Lord, but we sin, 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 sin. Age of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit poured out in greater fashion at Pentecost. And so this is how the kingdom of God comes to us in this day and age. Jesus exercises his kingly power through the scepter of his preached gospel. In these last days, the Holy Spirit is at work extending his kingdom through the scepter of Christ's proclaimed gospel. You see, we have to remember this, that all of us, by by reason of the fall, are rebels against God and We would never of ourselves repent of our sin and put our trust in Christ alone. We would never do that. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 that all of us are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And so if we are to repent, if we are to trust Christ and receive and rest in Christ, if we're to have life where we are dead, we have, listen, We need a miracle of grace for this to happen. And this is exactly the miracle, the great work of the Holy Spirit. He causes us to be born again through the preaching, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, through the preaching of the gospel, which is the seed of regeneration. 
The Holy Spirit subdues our wills as Lord. He See, now here we go. Now, if the Holy Spirit subdues our will as our Lord, then our will should be in complete submission to him. Therefore, why aren't we sinless? See, it's, it's, I, this, this is going to lead me right into conflict. See, I always find myself in conflict with everyone on these subjects, and it drives me crazy. Hey, he subdues your will. Well, then if, you're, if he subdues your will, then your will will always be in submission to him. Therefore, you should be sinless. And you say, well, well, he, he subdues your will, but it's not perfect. Okay, well, then if he's the one subduing the will, and my will is not complete, yet completely submitted to him, therefore I keep sinning, then my sin is his fault because he's the one who's supposed to be subduing my will. conquers our rebellion. He convicts us of our sin. John 16, 7 through 11. The Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see that we're blind. He gives us ears to hear that we're deaf. He gives us minds to understand which were darkened by our sin. He gives us minds to understand, ears to hear, eyes to see. Yet 2,000 years of church history and we can't agree even on salvation. Okay. We can't agree on, is it free grace? Is it lordship? Is it the reform view? Is it the Pelagian view? Is it the semi-Pelagian view? Is it the Augustinian view? Is it the Calvinistic? It's the Arminian. Is it the remonstrance? Who, who knows? Because nobody can agree. But, but, but the Holy Spirit, he, 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 get, he opens our mind. He opens our eyes. We claim all of this stuff and then nothing in practicality even comes close to demonstrating how we sell it. Hey, he's going to subdue your will. He's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. He's going to empower you. He's going to teach you. Yet nobody can agree and everyone keeps sinning. The Holy Spirit creates faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. And he confirms and assures and strengthens our faith by the use of the, by the, use of the holy sacraments, which are the visible gospels. Okay, and obviously I'm not sacramental, so I review I completely reject the sacramental system. The Holy Spirit equips us to serve Christ and his body and each other. The Holy Spirit produces holiness in us, and he, he is ever working to bring us into the image and likeness of Christ. Again, if the Holy Spirit's the one producing holiness in us, then why can't we be actually holy? Because holy is the could be 100% separate from sin. You can't say he, he's producing holiness in us, but there's still sin. Well, then that's not true holiness, right? Holiness is completely separate and other than sin. God is holy, perfect. So, but if the Holy Spirit's doing all of these things, then Christians should be in agreement theologically, and we should basically be perfect. Well, we're not in agreement theologically, and we're far, 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 far from perfect because we continue to sin, 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 and thought, word, and deed by what we do and what we leave undone internally and externally. Christ, he helps us fight against our sin. He helps us to fight against the desires of our flesh. Galatians 5. Leads us to repent of our sin constantly, to confess our sin constantly, which we've done here today in great humility, asking God to have mercy upon us. The Holy Spirit overcomes our, the sinful desires of our flesh and he conquers them, creating new desires. So the Holy Spirit conquers our sinful desires and gives us new desires. I mean, if you listen to everything he's saying the Holy Spirit does, Christians should basically be, I don't know, a couple of seconds away from walking on water and should basically be perfect. This is the thing the church constantly does. You, we can do this and this and this and this, and we have this power and this and we can, and then all we see is sin, 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 sin. So you have to start convincing yourself that you do all of this stuff and all of this stuff is true. But it's not true. We all sin. I, I don't understand the disconnect in the minds of so many Christians. You have to convince yourself that all of this is real. It's not. Which is the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's all his work that he does for us. He's Lord. He's the giver of life. We confess that.
And the people in the background saying, amen, go home and sin, 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 sin. I could ask their wife. I could ask their kids. I could look at their internet browser history. I could look at their thoughts. I could look at their desires. And all I'm going to see is sin because that's the way it works. I'm sorry, we can convince ourselves all day of all of this stuff, but nobody seems to want to take into account the never-ending history of sin, of disagreement, of disunity, and that nobody seems to agree on anything theologically. While we claim that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, gives us this, does this, does this, does this. I mean, if you listen to everything he just said the Holy Spirit does, I don't know why Christians aren't perfect. The Holy Spirit, as we'll see, is our advocate who shines on Christ like a floodlight, comforting and assuring our hearts that God, as Paul says in Romans 8, 31, God is for us. He's for us. So with that, with that how exactly does lordship salvation undermine assurance? All right, we're going to stop right there with that question. How then does lordship salvation undermine assurance? We're going to stop at the, we'll stop at 23, 23, 23 mark. Assurance. That's where we'll stop. 23, 23, 24, 33 to go. Make sure I got every time stamp down that I can uh, to make sure we go. We'll try to finish it. I don't know if we'll finish it late tonight, but we'll try to finish this. Um, I love the historical background. I love that he separates. So he basically creates three camps. You got the free grace camp, you got the lordship camp, and what he's calling the reformed, the historical reformed camp. Three camps. Now, I want you to just realize all three camps you're going to have to believe that obviously all three camps are made up of people who truly believe in Christ and who are saved. So all three people, all three camps are made up of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who all are saved, who all have the Holy Spirit, but nobody can come to agreement on this very critical issue related to salvation. And all three camps are made up of people who sin, 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 sin. And all three camps claim that the Holy Spirit gives us power, 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 but yet we can't agree on anything and we still sin. So I get frustrated with all three camps. All right, we'll stop right there. You can email me your thoughts. Where were you in 1988 when the book, The Gospel According to Jesus, came out? How influential has that book been in your Christian life? You may never have read the book, but the theology put forth in the book, I guarantee you, has shown up in your church in some way, shape, or form, and I guarantee you, you have been influenced by it. Your ignorance of something does not negate its influence upon you. That's why you've got to know what's going on in the world of Christianity so that when you are being influenced by it, you have, a, you have some idea where the influence is actually coming from. But we'll talk more soon. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. All right, that was fun. I wish you would have spent less time on the COVID stuff and got right into this, but that's the fun part of doing the sermon reviews is we never know exactly how they're going to go because we don't listen to them in advance. So we always have fun. I can't wait to see how he advances this. So thank you for listening. We will, we'll, we will take up this review later tonight and try to finish it. That's going to be my goal. All right. Thanks for listening. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless.